and welcome to Women Talk About Horror, the podcast where women talk about horror. I'm your host, Kenny, and I have Vivian with me today, and we are going to talk about 13 Stories by Jonathan Sims. Good evening. Um, Vivian's actually the one who recommended this book to me. I hadn't really heard of it, and she thought I would like it, and she was right. The Magnus Archives has been a special interest of mine pretty much since, uh, probably since episode 30 or 40, um, since pretty much since 2016. Uh, and so following the real life Jonathan Sims on Twitter and on other social media, uh, just naturally followed. So when I saw that he had written a book, and when I knew at that point that the Magnus Archives storyline would be ending uh, in the near future, or maybe at that point it was just sort of the future, I knew that I needed to get a copy of the book. <laughs> and I think that physical copies are still not available in America. Uh, there was some concern over publication in the UK versus the US, hmm. and I thought, well, if I can get this on Kindle, I'll just get this on Kindle. Kindle is not sponsoring us, by the way. Um, <laughs> but I thought anything that he creates, really, I have to read, and I have to be one of the first to read. I can't have uh, FOMO about this. <laughs> Yeah, because when I went, after you told me about it, when I went looking, I saw that it was only available on Kindle. Yes, so I didn't know if it was a digital only. Yeah, I didn't know if it was a digital only release, which I know some places do now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I also got it on Kindle. I get most of my books on Kindle, though. I'm not you librarian. Know- I I was not buying into the Kindle phenomenon until some of the restrictions around COVID were lifted and I was vaccinated and I was traveling and I thought, golly, isn't it just so much more convenient to have these on my phone than lug my, you know, four or five books that I read concurrently around an airport. Um, I'm still very fond of physical books and very fond of the physical books I keep in my home. But if it's a, a new book that I'm prioritizing reading or just a light read that I can pick up and put down, it, it tends to go onto Kindle. I'm, I'm betraying my, uh, <laughs> my, my hipster roots by doing so, but I'm perfectly satisfied with that. No, I'm the same way because it's so much easier because sometimes at the library it is a little quieter and I do get a mm-hmm. little bit of a chance to maybe read on the desk a little. And it's not a good look to kind of have your face in a book and then it's kind of unapproachable for if people need to. <laughs> ironic a bit but right yeah (laughs) so you know just having the book on the computer and being able to read it on there and then you know if we switch computers I don't have to worry about leaving my book anywhere I can read at home easily I I like ebooks a lot like this is just a side note you know we'll get back to 13 stories in a (laughs) second absolutely this is not we're not here to praise ebooks specifically (laughs) it's just happening yeah I mean it's just it's a lot easier um because I also read multiple books at the same time. Otherwise, yes, I'll never yes. finish a book because I just get very distracted very easily. Um, Likewise. I also have, because I'm dyslexic, so I have the dyslexia font on in um, my Kindle. Oh, that must be so convenient. I It is. I don't know if it helps for sure. Okay. But okay. it's a nice option. I mean, it doesn't hurt. So, you know, it's it's nice to try it out. And it feels very magical. A, yeah, it's not technology. a bad font, you know. <laughs> doesn't good, hurt my good. eyes or anything good yeah so th- there's our little we both like ebooks i do have a lot of physical books too and if i really like a book i will get it both as a ebook and a physical book that makes perfect sense to me yeah. i i my collection of physical books uh, i keep meaning to pare it down and it keeps growing larger so mm-hmm. i can absolutely relate yeah okay so back to the actual book we're going to talk about 13 stories um, we'll probably get into some spoilers in here a little just to give people a warning. But it's about Banyan Court, a kind of a apartment condo complex. One side is very um, like high scale, you know, like very expensive condos. The other side is basically what we would call here like Section 8 um, apartments. And it's a very creepy place to say the least. The supernatural elements are brought in pretty much from the first chapter, Mm -hmm. which I appreciated. There's no big twist or reveal of, 
oh my god, it's actually ghosts. Mm -hmm. Uh, From the beginning, both the haves and the have-nots of the story are experiencing what they immediately recognize as supernatural occurrences. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and even if they don't notice, like, quite at first, like, the one guy who had, like, the stain on the wall. Yes. Where he kept being like, yes. Yeah. (laughs) That was... That was not a good time for him. No, I, I felt that some... So to backtrack a little bit, I mm-hmm. guess, it's um, not epistolary, I apologize, <laughs> uh, but it is a collection of individual perspectives yes. that sort of read as vignettes, sort of read as short stories uh, that end up making a whole by the end of the book. <laughs> so... With each of these perspectives, uh, some of whom are coming from the rich side, some of whom are coming from the poor side, I felt that some stuck with me more. Some mm-hmm. were told a little bit more realistically, and the ones that were a little more realistic and less, you know, let's let's be honest, less black mirror, <laughs> yeah. um, I enjoyed more because they were almost relatable. And Mm -hmm. I think a good horror story should be relatable to the reader. I don't want to read something and say, this doesn't scare me at all because it could never happen to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if I'm not big on camping, I watch Evil Dead and I go, oh my God, I don't want to go camping now. (laughs) I don't go, oh, those those poor schmucks, you know, how how could this happen? You know, they made such poor choices. I go, oh my God, that that could be me if I went camping. so, so with the stories in 13 stories, uh, which, which is a double entendre, which is a pun, if you haven't figured it out yet from the fact that it's about a condominium of sorts, um, some of them I found were more realistic and thus more disturbing. Mm-hmm. And uh, like the one that Kitty mentioned, the stain on the wall, I find especially coming out of you know, multiple lockdowns of the past year and a half. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea of focusing on something that you feel like others are gaslighting you about, that others aren't recognizing for what it is, that you feel might be supernatural in origin, uh, is truly a horrifying road to go down. Mm Yeah. Yeah, but I like what you said, like, one of the ones that I liked the most um, was titled Sleepless. It was the one about mm. Alvita. Yes. Um, it's about a woman who has a lot of trouble sleeping and she takes kind of massive amounts of sleep medication. And mm-hmm. I mean, I've had insomnia and it's been hard for me to fall asleep. And so just reading that one really stuck out to me. Yes. Yeah. As I recall, it's, it's massive amounts of... Uh now illegal sleep yes. medication yes yes, yes. Mm-hmm. so the element of sort of blurring the line of I, am i taking care of myself or am i harming myself in my attempts to take care of myself i think really drove home the realism of that short story right and then the other things that did happen to her mm-hmm. the kind of supernatural elements even like you're reading it from her perspective and you're like is this happening or is she hallucinating because of this medication Yes. You know, so in when she's trying to tell people what's happening, they're like, "You're on a hallucinogen, basically." Yes. Yes. So, so the gaslighting theme is, I think, present in most, many of the yeah vignettes, most of the stories. Yeah. Both for the richer characters and the poorer characters, mm-hmm. and that it all came down to the sort of man behind the curtain who is a, a billionaire, who is the ultimately wealthy one. My, my interpretation is that it's sort of a metaphor to say the ruling class kind of, can I curse? Yes. Kind of fucks <laughs> over everyone. Um, I'm sorry, I have to ask. <laughs> well, and to uh, those first two stories that we mentioned, the first one with the stain, that's on the rich side of the building, mm-hmm. and then the woman with the pills is on the poorer side of the building. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it kind of goes back and forth, um, too, with the stories of where they're set. Yes, yes. Uh, So 
I, I definitely like that aspect of everybody is sort of suffering. They're not suffering the same. They're not suffering in the same way. And some of them are, are surrounded by all sorts of comforts in life outside of this one supernatural thing that's just really getting into their minds. Uh, but ultimately, it comes down to one sort of villain ultimately causing this. Yes. And, and Banyan Court, the, the kind of condominium, is really kind of a character in and of itself. Yes. Um, and the the stories do end up being more and more interconnected, especially as you go on. Um, and just the building is not right. <laughs> yes. The idea of a haunted place shows up so much in horror media. Mm-hmm. And I think so many different authors have a different idea of what constitutes a haunted place. Is it that it is a building that happens to be full of ghosts? Or is the place itself endemically rotten? Mm -hmm. Uh, This story is very much in the latter camp. Yes, there are humanoid spirits, uh, spirits that may have once been individuals who suffered, but it's very much in the latter camp of this is an endemically rotten place. I mean, that was, you know, kind of the reason it was built. And I kind of like that Mm -hmm. idea when you find out what is actually going on to this building, the idea of, yes, it's a haunted house, basically, but it was specifically created to kind of be a haunted house and harvest kind of that, almost the darkness to people. Yes. And to, like, target people specifically with that horror. Yes. Which is scary, because, you know, you think you're safe at home. Exactly. And to find out that your home was specifically built to torture you is not a comforting thought. No, no. It, it turns very much the idea of home and safety on its head. Mm-hmm. There is nothing... There is no place in the building, whether it's someone's allotted apartment, their own apartment... Or some other place in the building. There is no place that is safe. And there's no one that's safe because, I mean, most of these characters that you, you know, go through the story with are adults. But there is one who gets a whole chapter for Anna who is a child. I think she's seven or eight. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's got this imaginary friend who is very, very creepy. (laughs) Yes. Um, I found Anna's story to be one that stuck with me the most because it's been a very long time since I was a child. (laughs) So I don't like, it's hard for me to say um, that I think the author really got into a child's mindset accurately. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't feel particularly strongly one way or the other about whether he accurately assessed what it is to be a seven year old child. But I do think that he used her sort of innocence and not understanding all of the supernatural elements around her mm-hmm. or even the implications of non-supernatural events around her. I think he used her, her innocence and her ignorance uh, as, a, as a very well-built literary device mm-hmm. um, so that we as the reader could see a limited perspective fr- through Anna but we also knew more than she knows simply due to our life experiences. Right, that was the thing reading like about, you know, like the games that she played with Penny yes. and the things Penny said and did, like looking at it as an adult, you're like, that's disturbing that's and terrifying. Right? <laughs> right. Anna's just like I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, and Anna's just like, Oh, okay. I guess this is the game. Like she just doesn't understand because she is a child and you know Right. I think I kinda liked when going later on, the more we learned about Banyan Court, mm-hmm. the more um, we got into characters who kind of realized, hey, something's not quite right here. <laughs> Let me yes. kind of take a look at this. Like the um, the plumber and then the other guy who was going around measuring the building. Yes, I was going to say the plumber, but before I forget, I do think that... Jonathan Sims was very heavily influenced by House of Leaves. Um, House of Leaves was probably the pandemic read that I regret the most. (laughs) Not because I disliked it. I absolutely loved it. 
Um, I, I regret it because it was like the middle of June and I couldn't leave my house. And here I was ready to get the tape measure out myself. <laughs> yeah, I've never, I you know. Yeah, I've never I, read um, House of Leaves, but I've, I know the, the basic story. So, yeah, yes. that would, yeah, I definitely can see what you mean, that the inspiration and, yeah. I had actually, I, I had picked up a copy of House of Leaves when I was like 20. And then, um... Basically, I had a. I'm I'm going to uh, use an understatement here and say toxic friendship. Um, I had a really toxic friendship uh, with a gentleman who ran a sort of House of Leaves fan blog. I I, 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 I didn't know into, that was a thing. <laughs> um, it was a wild ride. I could get into this more at a later date. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, oh my gosh, I associate this book with this friend, so I, I'm just you know going to give it away and never pick it up again. <laughs> and then I thought, oh well, I've exhausted every book in my house um i guess i'll read house of leaves and then i was like oh this book is driving me up a wall um and do do i think jonathan sims uh took influence from many aspects of house of leaves yes um i don't think that 13 stories was in any way a pastiche i don't think that it was derivative uh i just think that if you're familiar with the house of leaves you will see multiple references Mm -hmm. in 13 stories beyond just the shifting sizes, the shifting dimensions. Okay. That's really cool. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think the plumbing one was probably the grossest chapter. Yes. I don't mind gore on the written page. Um, I didn't, so I didn't really get upset by that chapter same. yeah same i just um i did kind of amuse me just kind of how he was like fairly chill about it, the character yeah, he it was like it was like a perspective that i would expect from a character that had maybe been in world war one and had like seen the effects of like mustard gas on a close friend mm-hmm. like i i really okay that's a very eurocentric perspective there have been other wars that used you know, biochemical weapons that should never, ever, mm-hmm. ever have been used. Um, but in most of the media that I consume, in which is mostly Western media, I immediately think, oh, this is the perspective of someone who has been in a war and seen people die horrifically and is now inured to it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was so interesting because I don't know much of the modern history of Poland. And this was like a 40-year-old guy from Poland. Yeah. So this guy was probably born in like... 1975 and he was just looking at these pieces of dead uh co-worker basically mm-hmm. um you know that it was other other construction workers who had died and been stuffed into tubes um am i remembering all of that correctly Dad, like i'm not like it was abstract. It was abstract. Right, yeah. This is this is why Kitty and I are both like, ah. Oh, and it was like one of those things like was I was abstract. reading it and I was like, it. Why is he not running? Like he's I know, just like I know. Oh, this is in the pipe. And I yes. was like, my friend, you need to get out of there. Yes, yes. But also, it you was have to like, wonder like because there's, yeah. <laughs> I was just it's, there's some blood there's some bone and oh there's a hard hat oh it's a whole person was kind of the process that i was reading through Mm -hmm. in that chapter and then he was just like huh there must have been an accident when they made the building and i was like that's what you got from this (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like he was just fairly calm about it i mean admirable bully to him but but i I also do wonder how much Banyan Court is influencing some of these people's actions. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, and also, would other people see what he's seen? Because the story right before him was the security guard. Yes. Who, um, yes. Severe hallucination. Yes. So you almost wonder, like, is... I mean, and also, like, at that point, like, reading the, the one about the security guard, I was like, is any of this really real? Like, I mean, yes. obviously it's real for the people experiencing it. But it has real consequences. Yes. But, but is it being perceived by right. two people the same way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was like, um, I did find it interesting that going back to Anna and her imaginary friend Penny, 
Mm-hmm. Anna's parents couldn't see Penny. Right. But Alvita, the woman who we talked about in the other story, could see Penny. Yes. And I wonder if that was meant to be because of Alvita's medication or whether it was meant to be a parallel between parents who were in the loop about what was actually happening with their kids mm-hmm. versus parents who were not in the loop at all, right. i.e. Anna's parents. Or just d- almost like the building is picking and choosing the people, too. Who yes. It influences. Yes. Yeah. Which, I mean, as as a writer myself, I, I would want a little more thorough explanation there <laughs> for why Alvita yeah. could see spirits that Anna's parents couldn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, Anna's mom does eventually see her at the dinner. Um, yes, yes. And does not handle it well, understandably. I um, mean, apparently Penny had very sharp rows of teeth, and yes. I've never seen a child that looked like that, and if I did, I'd run. Yeah, she had little piranha teeth. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, but, and that's the, you know, that part of the story is kind of what made me wonder um, how much the building is controlling these people, because... You know, all the rest of the guests were just like, oh, she's not supposed to be here. You know, let, let's, we'll give her some sleeping pills and put her in another room. It'll be, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. It's like they almost all seem to know what, know what to do up until um, Tobias Fell, who made Banyan Court, came out. Like, they kind of knew what roles they were supposed to play until it actually came to, like, the big climax. Except yes. for Anna, who, you know, was a child. Right, right. I think that in the ending, there was, I think the intention, Tobias's intention was to strip every individual of his or her identity. Mm-hmm. Um, because they were not necessarily happy, but at least comfortable to a degree in who they were. Whether it's, you know, this is my job, this is my family, this is what I do when I wake, and this is what I do when I sleep. They they were very set in their ways until these supernatural events happened. Yes. And I think that in, in his aim to control all of these individuals, stripping their identity, especially in the case of the... Uh, the maintenance worker, whose um, whose name, real or imagined, I <laughs> I can't recall off the top of my head um, because he was sort of dealing with a dual identity situation. Oh, um, I have it up in front of me. Jason and Max. Rex. Max. Yes, yeah, I knew Jason it had and an Max. X. Yeah. Jason and Max. So in Jason's situation, he literally had his identity stripped of him mm-hmm. in the bifurcation of Jason versus Max. Or Jason, or Max inhabiting Jason, or, mm-hmm. or however um, you know that that is interpreted by the reader, um, and in some of the other characters, I think there were glimpses of that also. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's taking away their name, their job, um, all their sanity, <laughs> yeah, um, all sorts of different things that I I think that was sort of the goal that Tobias was focusing on. Um. One thing that I think Jonathan Sims does good, um, and he kind of does it in the Magnus Archives, like, kind of mankind's fears into these different categories, is mm-hmm. all of these ghosts that, you know, and these stories that we've been learning before, and kind of the things targeting them, it's all connected back somehow to this millionaire and to people he's hurt. And yes. I thought it was creative the ways that he sims represented these different um groups of people that can be hurt by you know millionaires and large corporations just kind of bulldozing right over them yes uh literally in a few cases i think yes yeah yeah (laughs) with tearing down parts of the building and Mm -hmm. and rebuilding it in horrifying horrifying ways Mm -hmm. um Yes, he, his vision was that of a monolith. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you talk about Jonathan Sims categorizing things, I know this isn't a TMA fan cast, <laughs> but um, I kind of want to see a television show that's like halfway between, uh, you know, Rusty Quill Q&As with Jonathan Sims and uh, the life-changing magic of tidying up, where <laughs> Jonathan Sims just comes to your house and takes everything that stresses you out 
and puts it in different categories of like, oh, this is the primal fear of yours that's affected by glassware that doesn't match. Um, and he can just sort of psychoanalyze you based on your belongings and put them into different categories. I would, I would pay Netflix so much money to produce that. <laughs> I, yeah, because I mean, he, little things can, you know, affect you and can cause Absolutely. fear and anxiety. And he's used that concept in both the Magnus Archives and 13 Stories. Yes, yes, to to great effect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that having a sort of, um, I don't know if disbursement is quite the right word, but having ghosts that were neither monolithic nor incredibly important in their individuality, Mm -hmm. uh, having that sort of vague, ghost personification um, I felt was actually a really nice foil to TMA where each of the fears could be named yes um, named and indeed personified as, mm-hmm. as individuals you know who were villainous um, so sort of having a singular villain I thought was more appropriate for a like 300 page book mm-hmm. than a uh, <laughs> let me do some quick math here um, I want to say 250 hour podcast probably yeah yeah that's yeah. a lot of media it is 250 hours <laughs> like forward. the the ghost kind of being um not individualized and kind of more of like a monolith of just these ideas of people have been hurt i mean that starts off in the first story with violet she sees just shadow people and she doesn't understand what they're trying to tell her yes um and violet's perspective i liked because she is not naive. Mm-hmm. She's an adult. She knows what to fear and not to fear in the real world. You know, if there's no supernatural element in the picture, she assesses her own safety and her own danger level very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's not a hundred percent reliable narrator because she is loath to believe she's experiencing the supernatural. Right. And I will say hers was probably when I first started reading. I was like, oh, it's going to be one of those. Um, books where you don't know like is the person going crazy or if there's something wrong with them or are they really right. experiencing supernatural um, so I think go, you know starting off with that one where it's very ambiguous was really good setting for the story because that kind of you know you're, you're not going to knowing that this is a ghost story basically right right and it gives you some room to get to know the characters before it's sort of before the nail is sort of driven in that says, mm-hmm. this is absolutely a ghost story. Right. I think that probably starts much later in, maybe with the uh, the real estate agent, when she's trying to... I thought it up. started a little bit earlier with um, uh, Jesus. Oh, okay, yeah. Because I, 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 know, I, I I'm sort of of two minds about it, because... On one hand, yeah, sometimes I buy a painting and I look into it for hours and I start weeping. But, like, that's not normal. It's it's not, no. Um, I do agree that probably, to me, the more final nail in the coffin of this is a ghost story as opposed to the first solidification of this is a ghost story was the realtor story. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was just incontrovertible proof that... There were ghosts in Banyan Court. Yes. I guess even the one before that with the uh, the writer journalist who lives there and she goes exploring. Ah, um, uh, yes. Right. But even her, she's kind of an unreliable narrator. Yes. Um, and I, I think that's where you kind of be. Uh, that was kind of where the feeling I was like, oh, this is a haunted building. And then the next story after that is the real estate. And I was like, oh, it's a very haunted building. Very haunted. Mm-hmm. Very haunted. Um... I will Who say the, the concierge story, the Jason Mack story, got me uh, until the end. I I did not see the end of that story coming. I didn't either. I, you know, I got there like it. Once I realized what was happening, very close to the end, I was like, oh. Yes, yes. It took me a while because I really thought, 
oh, he's just got this, like, disgusting, bigoted co-worker mm-hmm. who pushes him around. Was I imagining, like, a Greg Davies, Alex Horn kind of situation? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I imagine he just had this big guy pushing mm-hmm. him around. And, and he was just a pushover. And, yeah. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, he's hallucinating. Mm-hmm. Some kind is dealing with some kind of dissociative identity disorder. And there's also a ghost involved in this manifestation of dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. Um, and I like that they kind of brought him back up at, with the last story before the dinner um, with yes. the guy who kind of has figured out what's going on um, where he's talking to the other concierge and she's like, did Jason bring up Max again? I'll talk to him. And it's yes. like, oh, yes. so the people around him. They're you know. seeing his behavior for right. what it really is. Mm-hmm. But then Max, the spirit, appears as a discreet entity to some of the party guests. Yes, he's the he's the security for the you know they have to yes. have security at their dinner yes. party. Oh, so strange, so yeah. strange. Um, I would not like to encounter him in a dark alleyway. <laughs> no, no, and I mean, and that goes into you know this building was created to bring the worst spirits and the worst of people out, um, and that's definitely what max was like whether he was a separate manifestation or something in jason he was yes probably the worst parts of jason amplified if that's what that was um yes it could have been a separate entity Mm -hmm. but it could have not been a separate entity um while i am very much a fan of having all loose ends tied up at the end of any sort of mystery or i didn't care for the epilogue I agree. I agree. Um, what I was going to say is, is oh, I was fine. No, you're good. You're good. I was going to say I was fine with the Jason Max divide mm-hmm. not being a hundred percent clarified, like yes. from a. But I mean, so many things have supernatural explanations. Like, mm-hmm. what are they going to say? Like his spirit split into two. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I I agree. The epilogue was a little too neat. Yes. Um. I was merely satisfied with knowing that it's not a spoiler to say I was merely satisfied with knowing that Tobias was dead because Mm -hmm. the beginning chapter tells tells you that uh, Tobias is dead. It's basically you're Um, you're learning what led up to that. Yes. Yes. I mean, Uh, I was happy, you know, good for Caroline and Violet that they were together. Yes. I I, I love any story where the, uh, you know, the woman woman couple survives at the end yes. <laughs> um, because uh, some some of the podcasts i listen to some of the radio dramas i listen to didn't quite get that memo mm-hmm. um the magnus archives did but yeah. some of them didn't um, <laughs> not not calling anyone out um so i do think that that put a bit too neat of a bow on it yes um it was a very happy optimistic ending i mean i mean and it was right after probably (laughs) one of the goriest things i've ever read yes and then to be like oh we're meeting for lunch here's you know your update on everyone five years later and it's like okay i know i know i I think i think you know what i think i think it was the tonal change that got me because i agree i agree like i said that was you know, what happens to Tobias, it really is one of the most brutal things I've read. And mm-hmm. then immediately after, it, it just, the, the shift was a little much for me. Not that I don't I agree. think that they should have gotten happy endings. It was just... Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I agree with you there. And I think for me, it was that the important, the important aspects of the ending... We knew from the beginning. Mm -hmm. We knew that those who came into this situation with... Who were either trying to be moral people or their morality was on the line. We knew that ultimately they would make the right choice and not become as immoral as Tobias. Mm -hmm. Um, But also it is not that... You cannot literally overthrow capitalism by throwing a man out of a building. Like, if only it were that easy, someone would have done it already. (laughs) You can't just throw a man out of a building and be like, well, (laughs) our problems are solved. The ghosts can rest easy now. (laughs) It was was a little too clean for me. Um, But do, do I think that... 
I'm happy with the through line of the story that everybody did make the moral choice mm-hmm. um, and that these individuals who were sort of specially selected by Tobias to inherit the crown of his indignities and cruelties all specifically said no. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great story. I think, yes. you know, this is it's a story of essentially 13 heroes in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, which is already optimistic beyond belief. I think that the tidy ending put it into the realm of saccharin. I agree. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing I liked was how Tobias, when you're finally kind of getting his point of view he mentions symbols are important and Mm -hmm. um you know they kind of throw that out just you know the act of them kind of acting together and elvita cutting the bindings off the man that they're supposed to kill and you Mm -hmm. know releasing them from this pact that they're supposed to make with tobias was Mm -hmm. really powerful very symbolic Mm mm-hmm and um, I will say that Tobias's uh, obsession with aesthetics might have been his downfall. Um, yeah. I think I think that is that can be broadly applied to n- not not speaking politically, but speaking aesthetically, conservatism and and rejection of postmodernism. Um, I'm getting really high concept here. I apologize. It's okay. I'll keep it short. Um, to say that we must reuse the old symbols and the symbols of cruelty and the mm-hmm. symbols of war and of brutalism, um, not talking about the architecture, um, is to say we cannot forge a path forward. Mm-hmm. And that was what Tobias was saying. He was right. saying, we are going to do things like Alistair Crowley did. We are going to do things like uh, Marquis de Sade did. Um, and everyone else was saying, no, we're rejecting that symbolism. We are going to work together and we are not going to eat a man's flesh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and also the concept that, you know, he's kind of filled this building with cruelty mm-hmm. and it was really kindness and caring that saved everyone. Yes. You know, just, you know, the old woman ghost who, you know, reached out to help because they had helped well, her. Liked and, her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, nice. the kid who needed justice um, because of Max, like, just, you know, just the thought that, like, just being kind and helping people mm-hmm. was what saved these, you know... I, yeah, that's, I, I, I was all about that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, agreed, agreed. Yeah, the, the kind of symbol of, like, love overcoming hate, um, I thought that was really great. Yes, strongly agree. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it could have been safe from being too saccharine, because, I mean, it was, to me, very similar, not tonally, but mm-hmm. in its execution, to Murder on the Orient Express. Yes. Um, to say nobody, nobody is mourning this guy. <laughs> Well, because it was more justice than yes. just straight, you know, I mean, technically they murdered Tobias, but... But really, really who murdered Tobias, right? right? And what... It, it wasn't done out of, like, hate or malice. It was done from a sense of justice, of kind of fighting back against the cruelty that he put into the world and the people that he hurt finally being able to um I don't know like it was just I I really liked that concept yes likewise um and and, I mean Tobias pretty much planned for his own demise so like did did they really even do anything wrong (laughs) did they well they didn't kill the man that he intended them for them to kill so. Right, right. That's <laughs> they, they killed. They, they, wanted... they killed someone, but not who he thought they were going to kill. Right, but I mean, he meant for them to be his his spiritual successors. But no, and... he wanted them to take on his sins. Yes. So he could leave the building and not be haunted by the ghosts. Okay, I okay, I I interpreted that 
differently and probably incorrectly. Um, I interpreted that as him sort of like thinking this was his ticket to heaven, that he would be absolved of his sins. Oh, I didn't think of it that I thought he was being very okay. straightforward with them. I could be reading that wrong. Um, I mean, starting out any conversation with like "eat my flesh" mm-hmm. is is gonna some things are gonna and get then actually after that. feed them your flesh and I then mean, actually like, yeah. feeding them your flesh. Yes. Um, okay, so I think that was on me for misinterpreting that. I mean, I could um, be messy. Maybe he did mean that too, but I because what made me think that is he's he said that he had been haunted by these spirits for most of his life and he needed yes. someone to take that haunting from him right that that part i got that part mm-hmm. i understood I, I guess what i wasn't clear on was whether he was planning this as sort of an afterlife contingency plan or whether he was going to retire in cabo i kind of got the feeling he was going to retire because he definitely okay. didn't want to die at that point ah uh, yes okay yeah um th- that was I mean, maybe he was thinking about the afterlife too. Like, they mm-hmm. they have my sins. It's that's almost like a biblical kind very. of very oh to, yeah. yeah very like Last Supper. Oh, symbolism. it's you know it's very Last Supper because there are sects of Christianity who believe that they are actually drinking the blood of Jesus and eating. I love his flesh. I love how you say sects like it's not millions of them. Um. <laughs> Well, I mean, I didn't grow up in that sort of Christianity, so (laughs) I am not exactly sure. Thankfully, I didn't either. Thankfully, I didn't either. I just, um, I know uh, plenty of people who still uh, subscribe to it, and, uh, yeah. I'm not trying to call anyone specifically out here. (laughs) No, no, Um, specifically. But But it it, was a very... But it felt very... (laughs) There there was a very kind of Catholic communion sense to this. Yes, yes. Um, It was was like like an anti-Eucharist. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, because instead of, you know, the person whose flesh you're supposedly eating, taking on your sins, you're taking on his. Yes. Um, yeah, really, really reverse Eucharist. I, I'm just going to say it, you know, I, I, there are not many churches that I would like to go to, but a church where they said, eat this flesh so you can take on more sins. Oh, yeah. No, they did that. They did that back in the Middle Ages. They totally did that in the Middle Ages. They had sin eaters. They would they would have people go around and like eat their dinner on top of a dead body so that they could absorb the sins of the dead body. So that way they could go to heaven and then the yeah. other person could repent. Yeah. Well, then, I mean, that goes back into why like medieval times thought that people, if you committed suicide, you couldn't go to heaven because you never had the chance to repent for that sin. Again, I love how you say medieval times. Like, it's not millions of... I'm sorry, that's my pessimism speaking. I... But no, that, I'm familiar <laughs> with that line of theology, absolutely. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So, I, it's... I, I don't know a lot about, like, Jonathan Sims's background outside of, you know, he wrote the Magnus Archives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if he grew up in any sort of Christian denomination or not, but he has a lot of I mean, and even in the Magnus Archives, he had a lot of that kind of symbolism, too. But kind of yeah, there was twisted yeah. in, in both. Um, so that's really interesting. I wonder if he did grow up in Christianity or... Yes. Um, and I don't know how prolific Christian symbolism, whether Catholic or Protestant, is in the UK as opposed to the US. Um, I mean, Anglican is has a lot of the same symbolism as Catholicism. Yes, yes. Um, and Episcopalianism here uh, right. follows that line. <laughs> you can have married priests. Sorry, I'm getting way off track. <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, it's definitely something people would pick up on, like, just knowing anything about. Like, even as if you, you know, it seemed like Catholic stuff in movies. Like, right, it's, right. It's very, I wouldn't say it's like it's blatant, but it's definitely there. Yes, like the prolific uh, Dan Brown series. Uh, I guess I guess um, the plural of series is still series. 
Um, <laughs> the, the Dan Brown series that were so popular in the early aughts. Oh, the, uh, uh, yeah, the, like, Da Vinci Code. And... Da Vinci Code. I was going to say Da Vinci Code, uh, <laughs> but then I thought you might actually think, and your listeners might actually think, I'm just stupid. I'm not <laughs> referencing one of my favorite memes of the past two years. Um... With how prolific that material was, I wonder how much media that's influenced, because I did not grow up Catholic. I, mm-hmm. I've had really no real-world exposure to um, Catholic theology outside of, like, a brief stint in uh, communist Christian uh, <laughs> uh, forums on... Uh, well, again, I don't need, to, don't need to get too far into that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I think that, yes, other media is inevitably going to influence any horror mm-hmm. that's produced uh, in the late teens or in 2020 or 2021. Yeah. Well, and also, like, it's something people know, so... Yes. You know, the symbolism is put in things so people can recognize its symbolism. So it it does make sense. Yes. I I always find the use of symbolism actually branching out from Christianity into um, paganism and and druidic religion. Um, Mm. Interesting in UK media especially, because I think that unless someone consumes a lot of it, like I do, um, they're not going to say, oh yeah, I recognize this you know, Druidic society from when they were in this other show or this other series. They're just going to be like, oh, that's that's a one-off guy. That's just a guy with, you know, a big backyard where there happen to be people wearing robes. Like, (laughs) and and, and we're talking about Midsommar? No, no, (laughs) no, no, no. no. I'm talking about UK media specifically. Um, Midsommar is really, it's own beast huh um yeah. so really no matter which country you're in people hanging out in robes in someone's backyard is gonna have a very different connotation <laughs> with no matter which country you're in yeah yeah um so i already told you what i didn't like about the story i thought the epilogue was a little much i think you know they think about it like i think a good epilogue for me for the story would have been maybe like a fake like news blurb about tobias fell dying um Okay, yes, yes. Was there anything about the story that you particularly didn't like? Um, I wanted more of certain specific things. Not to give the novel another, you know, 100 pages, <laughs> but just a, just a little bit more. Um, I wanted a perspective from Diego. Oh, yes. Yes, and perhaps one from Damien. Damien got one. Damien it wasn't very own. long. He was the last one before the dinner. It wasn't very okay. Long, okay, though. then I might have I might have conflated the two in my head. Okay, yeah. So it would be a very short edition, but I mm. would want a chapter from Diego's perspective. That would be I know that would make it fourteen, yeah. not thirteen, but <laughs> maybe that could have been like kind of like the ending. Yes, yes, I would have liked that as definitely. A I mean, he kept appearing in everybody's stories, so. Mm-hmm. It would, you know, that would have been a nice little tie together. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I think I gave it, I gave it four stars on Goodreads. I'm, I'm between four and five because mm-hmm. I think that as far as what I expect from a murder mystery it delivered. Mm-hmm. I think that if I were judging it based on, uh, I guess, the curricula of horror broadly as a genre, it might get a four from me. Mm-hmm. But I read a lot more like classic murder mysteries than I do modern horror. So judging it against like Agatha Christie and Arthur Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. it gets a five. Judging it against, I mean, like I still need to read Mexican Gothic. It's on my list. You told me to read it. I need to read it. <laughs> Judging it against modern horror, I can see why it would be a four, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I definitely recommend it to people. Um, Mm -hmm. I personally love short story format because I get a little distracted sometimes when I read if I am not, like, hyper fixated on a book. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I think it's helpful to have these short stories because it's, I joke it's like tiny little books that, you know. I appreciate the bite-sized pieces myself. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I like short stories because I was mostly immersed in the format in like my, you know, AP literature class mm-hmm. where they were like, every single week you're going to read a short story that's going to just blow your fucking mind <laughs> and you're not going to be able to sleep because you're thinking about the implications AP of this crazy... AP good for that. <laughs> right? I, there's still like... some stories from my AP classes that I think about and I'm like, wow, I wish I could find that again. Yes, yes. Um, I think that... Like reading uh, Joyce Carol Oates, um, it was like a where where are you going? Where have you been? Mm-hmm. Um, just stories that the implication is not immediately clear until you get to the end, and you're like, "Fuck!" Um, I want I want more of those constantly all the time. Yes. and um, and this was thirteen of them. This mm-hmm. was thirteen of them, and I thought that was just grand. Yeah, I mean, and short stories are also great. Because if you don't like one of them, that's okay, because there's going to be more. So, you know... That's so true. Yeah, because, you know, not everyone is going to vibe with every story. But if you have more options, then it's still an enjoyable reading experience and book for you. Exactly, exactly. And I liked some of the chapters more than others. There were none that I hated. Yeah. Um, apparently, I found Damien's forgettable. Oops, sorry, Damien. <laughs> it wasn't very uh, long, because I remember right, I got to right. that one, and then it was done, and I was like, oh, we're at the dinner now. I thought... Because I just remember seeing him from Carrie's perspective so much Right. More. And yeah. it took me a second, because I, um, I had kind of taken a break in reading um, mm-hmm. between, um, I think... Between the Stain story and between Jason and Max's story, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we did get Damien's chapter, I was like, why is this person familiar? <laughs> yes. And then, like, I, it, like it hit me finally. Uh, but it's not very, it's not a very long one. It's more him being, you know, just being like, something's wrong with this building. Yes. I have to figure it out. Oh, no, it got Caroline. Um, and then the invite to dinner, basically. Um, Surprise. Yeah. It's like, well, at this point, we know how the chapter's going to end. Right. Um, I mean, I definitely thought it was interesting that he was probably the least affected by the building. And Yes. At at least mentally. Because at first, when you first meet him, you're like, why is this crazy man measuring hallways? uh Uh-huh. But then, like, when you get more into a story, and then you get a little bit of his perspective, you're like, oh, he's the sanest person I have read about so far. Well, I'm going to throw something out there. Tobias's intention was to erase the identities of everyone he called to his dinner. Mm-hmm. And Damien, having struggled with having been a transgender teenager, rejected by his family, must have established at the time we meet him a strong sense of identity. That's a very good point. I didn't realize it until I was just thinking about it just now. Yeah. <laughs> Because, yeah, he he really did have the best head on his shoulders out of anybody by the end of his, I guess, tenure in the building. Yes. Um, You know, up until they all met Tobias. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether his experience with being a loner and with having had to develop who he was uh, as an adult um, related into that. That makes a lot of sense because if you look at the people that the building kind of does target, it is people who are struggling with their identity and who, mm-hmm. who are they? I mean, Anna's a child. She doesn't know who she is yet. Right. Um, Alvita is an overworked woman who, you know, is her identity chronically sleep divide. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, Violet throws herself into work and that's her whole identity is being a workaholic. Mm-hmm. Um, as with the realtor. Yeah. As with Caroline. Mm-hmm. So it is people who maybe don't have the strongest sense of self. Yeah. And that enabled the building to kind of inhabit them in a way. I think so. I, I think that uh, that's the subtext. I'm really bad at picking up on subtext, which is ironic for how much I enjoy reading and, and writing stories. Uh, I am terrible at picking up subtext. Um, but I think that that is a pretty safe bet with this novel. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about that until, you know, you brought that up about it. So it that's really interesting. 
Because that's not something I had thought of before. Yeah, I think that his um his sense of self-determination and the fact that he was a loner with no family to speak of uh, might have contributed strongly to that. Yeah. Because, I mean, you look at some of the young professionals on the rich side and you get a very Patrick Bateman feel. You get a very, like, this person has no moral code. All they want is the appearance of success. Well, that, that was the thing with Lennon, the guy with... Or Leon, the guy with the stain. Yes. He, you know... His wife didn't want to move in this. She wanted to move into somewhere, you know, that was more homey. He's like, yeah, but the appearance, this will look good to the people at the office that I live here. Yep. You know, so he didn't really have an identity. He was putting on a fake identity that he thought would impress people. Yes. And my God, how many of those people I encounter on a daily basis is... Oh, seriously? Is something else. Yeah. Um... So, and that's especially interesting with, you know, now thinking about that with Jason and, you know, Max, who is either a part of Jason or an entity from the building, you know, maybe he already kind of had this kind of very weak personality and maybe a Max Mm -hmm. component to him and the building just zeroed in on that and drew it out. Yes. Yes. I, I still, I kind of want a solid answer. With Jason and Max, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty much equally satisfied with not having a solid answer. I do think it was interesting that they killed Max, you know? Yes. How do you kill a spirit? Like, well, what the hell with the good ghosts? <laughs> right, okay, yeah. fair. Um, which, like I said, I, I, I did like the idea of that, that the working together and the caring about each other and the caring about other people is ultimately what saves them because even like with the imaginary friend that anna has penny who is a creepy little child anna still cares about her a lot like yes um you know she doesn't want her friend to be hungry she wants to help her and you know just the concept that you know and that's a very childish thing like you know the child you know they don't and i think that's a good thing about children they don't look at like well, what can you do for me if I do this for you? Just the idea of wanting to be a good person and help your friend. Yes, but I will add the caveat. It depends the value system in which they are raised or lack thereof. That is true. (laughs) Because I was a very transactional child (laughs) (laughs) from my earliest memory. But, But that was, I think, the result of the behaviors I saw around me. Yeah. I mean... Not to go back to the Christian thing again, but that, you know, no it's a legs, very, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very kind of, you know, thought in there, too, like, do mm-hmm. this for the church and the church will help you or, you know. Give God 10% and mm-hmm. he'll give it back to you tenfold, right? Right, yeah. Um, no, Joel Osteen will take your money and Joel Osteen will buy himself a new private jet. Exactly, um, yeah. I know this depends on the church. I know this is not every church, but it right, is Joel yeah. Osteen's church. But I, um, I mean... You can you can there, there are if, like, <laughs> I mean, both of us were raised in Christian denominations. Yes. There yes. are some issues in Christianity with yep, making faith nice transactional. <laughs> yes, yes, agreed. Yeah. Um, the the conflation with capitalism, especially, is, right? Uh, and I, I mean, that, disturbing to me. That's a very big theme here. Um, you know, with capitalism and Tobias Fell, mm-hmm. and everything for him is transactional. You take on my sins. I give you $10 million. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, you'll be terrified for the rest of your life and not be a full human because you are basically the embodiment of the terrible things I've done. But you'll be rich, so it's fine. Mm, Because for him, it was fine. Mm -hmm. The money was enough. Yeah. Or he thought that for other people, the money would be enough. Right. He thought everyone viewed the world like he did as just the money is worth being a shell of a human yes and then we look at the job market and ask ourselves <laughs> oh is is this a metaphor <laughs> yeah oh. so there's a lot in there and i'm sure there's stuff that we miss that went over our heads I'm sure there's stuff that went over my head. Um, I, I think you corrected my perception on a couple of points. We both discovered subtext. Yes. And um, 
I, I think there's a lot that went over my head, and uh, and if if you believe the same, I I shan't I shan't correct you because I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of uh, subtext there. Yeah. So that's our episode for today, talking about Thirteen Stories by Jonathan Sims. Thank you for being with me, Vivian, and recommending this book to me. Gladly, as always. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Anytime. Women Talk About Horror is produced and edited by Christina Paz. Music by Fesslian Studios. Please follow us at Women Talk About Horror on Instagram. Please join us in two weeks for our next episode.